Our theology must come from Scripture itself, not from quoting the Bible and then, you know, sort of syncretistically connecting it with the culture so that really our message is more about the culture than it is about the biblical teaching and categories. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today, Steve Wellam and I are going to talk about his long form, Thinking Biblically and Theologically About Justice. All month long, we have been focusing on the civil rights movement, a nation-defining period of American history that has long impacted the church and the world. Helping us think about the civil rights and civil wrongs of that movement have been the insightful essays of Virgil Walker on the civil rights movement itself, Kevin Briggins on systemic racism, and Marla Helseth on racism and anti-racism. You can find all those essays online at ChristOverall.com. These essays and others have sought to apply biblical and theological categories to many cultural topics today, and truly we need such careful thinking. At the same time, we need to dig more deeply into the Bible itself to see what it says about justice. And today, Steve and I are going to do just that. To put it simply, any justice that is truly just must mirror God's standards. Which is to say, true justice is not just because someone says the word justice, or even that special word, social justice. Instead, true justice must match God's holy character and conform to God's holy word. God is the source and standard for justice, and those who are most passionate about justice should be the most ardent to know God, both who he is and what he has done. Truly, how one comes to know justice is not by following the crowds today, nor is it found by taking a college course on the civil rights movement. Few are the public universities that unify truth around God's revelation or rightly explain justice. This is why so many appeals for justice misfire in the classroom or start fires in the street. No, the place to find true justice is in God himself, as revealed most especially in the cross of Christ. Yet, even these biblical words and ideas can be mishandled when not properly formed from the whole counsel of God. If we're going to form a biblical view of justice, we must begin with God and move to the world, not the other way around. And more, we must do more than use isolated verses. We must consider the whole counsel of Scripture. Today, that is our aim, or at least that is the direction that we are headed. Yet before beginning that conversation, let me remind you that time is running out to download a free copy of Dividing the Faithful. How a Little Book on Race Fractured a Movement Founded on Grace. This book is Christ Overall's first publication, and one that in partnership with G3 Ministries we are offering for free this month on our website. This fall it will be available for purchase from G3, and I hope if you find this book helpful that you'll pick up one or perhaps a dozen to share with others. My book responds to the small and subversive book Divided by Faith, the book which is largely responsible for introducing critical race theory to the young, restless, and reformed movement. If you're not familiar with Divided by Faith or how it negatively impacted a generation of young evangelicals, you can read Ardell Kennedy's article about the book at ChristOverall.com. To preview, Divided by Faith was a book that introduced as much racial division as it reported. And so my book is meant to combat Divided by Faith and to point Bible-believing Christians back to the solid ground of God's Word and the hope that is found in the uncompromised gospel. So sign up for the Christ Overall newsletter and you will get a free PDF of Dividing the Faithful sent to your inbox. For now, let's talk about the biblical and theological foundations for justice. And to help us to do that, I'll be peppering Steve Wellam with questions. So Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you, Dave, and trust you're well. 
Yeah, good to be back here as well. Coming to you from uh, cabin in uh, Tennessee today, but uh, looking forward to our conversation. Just the two of us uh, on the call today. But we're just going to dive right into this article that you've written for us, thinking biblically and theologically about justice. Steve, as you're writing this piece, what's kind of just kind of a big picture idea that you're trying to accomplish as you're working on the subject of justice? Yeah, good question. I mean, it might sound sound simple, but uh, you know, you think of the discussions of of justice in our day, the confusion over the term. But as as Christians, right, we have to think when we have here biblically, we have to go back to Scripture and say what Scripture says about what justice is. So that's a crucial goal that I have. Is okay, let's go back and go back to our foundation. But then even more so, we have to go back to the doctrine of God. Uh, we can't just start with justice as it works out at the human level, which we do, but we have to first ground it in who God is as the one who is the source and standard of what is true, good, and beautiful, and in the case of justice, that he is the standard of justice. And I think some of our discussion today misses that point or simply overlooks it. I mean, you get into, all right, how do we relate to one another, but then what is justice and tying it back to who God is, and then it's outworking in society. So that's the you know the the, the rhyme and reason for this uh, this this presentation, this article, and to go back and think when we say biblically and theologically about justice is to really think about who God is as just, and then it's outworking his how his laws would work in society and apply to us. Yeah, I think uh, just reading through this article, it reminded me that we have so much conversation today about justice, social justice, economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice. Justice is thrown around so many different places. And it seems as though for Christians, we want to think biblically about this, but it's almost as though we begin in the wrong place. We begin with what the culture is saying about these things. We begin with the problems that are there, almost a method of correlation where the questions are raised by the culture around us today, the things going on today. And then we go back and find scripture verses to apply to that. And what you've done here is to completely invert that, actually to turn it right side back up again, and to begin with God who is just and to think through the doctrine of God that then falls out in what God has done in the world, what he has revealed to us in scripture, and then how that applies to us in our contemporary culture today. So that's what we're going to talk about, just kind of thinking through what you've argued here and just taking a, a turn to go back to the Bible itself and to see what is there. So as you make your argument here and just helping us to see that we shouldn't just be, you know, defining justice by justice, love is love, but to think through God who is just, you begin with that doctrine and thinking about the attributes of God and making the sense that, that justice is a moral and essential attribute of God. Steve, would you unpack just what those three aspects are when we think about a moral essential attribute of God? Yeah, so when I say that justice is both of those those ideas, right? It's a moral attribute, an essential attribute. I mean, we're getting into first the discussion as to what what do we mean by the attributes of God, right? And so when we think of God's attributes, I say that we don't think of this as attributes as sort of add-ons to God or something we attribute. I mean, attributes is the idea of we attribute to him. We in, if we want to take a grammatical sense, when we say God is, and then whatever follows is, is the predicate of the sentence, we make predications about God. We say what God is, right? So to speak of God's attributes, we're defining the very nature and being of God. But attributes are not add-ons. They're not 
parts of God. God is the one true God. So we think of his divine nature. We use the idea that he is singular in the sense that there's only one true God, but he's also, then we use this old term simple. Simple speaks of singularity in terms of God is not composed of parts. So when we speak of his attributes, there are ways that we then get our mind around and and God reveals himself in a certain way, uh, a specific way where we then say, this is what God is. And what God is, is particularly picked up in describing the very nature of God, the very being of God. So when we speak of attributes, that's what we mean by attributes and all of attributes, God, God is his attributes, right? And we then divide them up in terms of our thinking uh, in order to get our mind around who God is, but God is all these things. So when we speak of God as uh, independent, self-sufficient, that's who he is. That's what the very nature of God is. When we speak of then, and we then turn to moral attributes, moral attributes are attributes that more speak in terms of moral norm, standard, and then its application to us. So God is love. God is holy. God is just. Those are moral categories. And then we have other categories that we speak of God in terms of his relation to space, right? God is all present or God's relation to time. God is uh, uh, eternal. He is not uh, in time in that sense, right? So easy, the eternal one. So that's what we speak about in terms of attributes and moral attributes are picking up specific attributes that apply to God as the moral standard of what is right and wrong. He is that which determines what is right and good. And then when we speak about essential, this is an important term. Uh, Essential means that when we speak of his attributes, we must make a distinction between what God is in himself. So that's what he is essentially. This is this is the very nature of God. He does not change. He does not have characteristics or attributes that he can sort of lose or turn off, right? So this is the distinction between essential and accidental. These are old categories. Accidental are, are characteristics or attributes that we could have that we could lose, but we would still be the thing. That only applies to creatures. So humans, right, we essentially are the image of God, uh, yet we could lose an arm or a leg um, and we would still be human. So that's something accidental to us. God has all of his attributes essentially. So that means then that when we say God is omnipresent, God is holy, God is is just. These are essential to him in himself, independent of a world. And then when we think of God in relation to the world he has made, right, he then exercises those attributes. And this is why some attributes that we often classify as attributes really aren't attributes essentially. Think of divine wrath. When we think of God's wrath, wrath really is God in relation to the world he has made and specifically a fallen world. So God in relation to sin then exercises his essential attributes, his love, holiness, justice, which shows itself in wrath. But before there's a world or before sin enters the world, God is not essentially wrathful. God within himself, the triune persons, there is no wrath displayed, but there is love, 
holiness and justice that is displayed. So those are all crucial terms. They're loaded. They're full of really important significance. So God's justice is a moral attribute reflecting on him as the moral standard of the universe. God is the standard. God is good. God is just. God is holy. And then when we think of essential, this is God in himself. His attributes are defined in terms of who he is. And then we then distinguish or or we work out how then those attributes relate to the world that he creates, the world that he makes, the outworking of those attributes. So justice then is essential to him. And that's a crucial point. And that's where people will divide. Sometimes they'll say, well, love is essential. Holiness is essential. But justice maybe is just simply the outworking in relation to the world that he then can not or choose not to exercise or choose not to to uh, to employ in the world. No, God is just. So in relation to the world, he must then display his holiness, his love, his justice, because it is essential to him. So those are some crucial foundational terms. Yeah. And to kind of tease that out a bit further, thinking about the essential nature of his justice. I mean, when the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to one another as persons, they are treating each other justly when they are honoring one another with the glory that each deserves, right? So yes, God is love, but it is fair to say that God is just, and he's not waiting for a world to create in order to exercise that justice, which would be distinct from the way that his wrath is then expressed to sin because there is no sin in God. He can be just towards one another in the divine nature that is there. But there would be a distinction with that with regards to the world that he has made and the sinful world that comes with the wrath of God that is there. Yes, exactly right. And, and unless we make that, and that's why in, in, in theology, we often don't make it, right? We have to speak first of who God is in himself, independent of a world, right? So at the heart of Christian theology is the creator-creature distinction, the creature the world did not exist, right? It came, God created out of nothing. Those are crucial foundational points. So before creation, God exists. And when we speak of his attributes, we speak of who he is always as the triune God. And then, of course, in making a world, he's going to relate to that world. and The world's going to relate to him. And he is going to show the full display of, of his attributes to that world. And they show themselves in, you know, in terms of, we mentioned wrath, in terms of sin and so on, but God is not essentially wrathful. That's in relation to sin in the world. Yeah. Well, Steve, let's talk a little bit about that. When we think about the movement from God in himself to God in the world, and he's revealing himself both in mercy and in wrath in the world that he has made, we can think about a passage like Revelation 9, and 23, that there are vessels of mercy and there are vessels of wrath that God has intended to reveal his glory to, to the world that he has made. Where are some of the key texts or the key events that help us to begin to think about this idea of God's justice? Yeah, especially when you think of uh, mercy and and grace, these have to be, again, carefully defined too, because sometimes uh, people make, so God is love, that is who he is essentially, right? But he then, in relation to the world, uh, especially in relation to sin, chooses not only to create the world, but chooses then to display his mercy. His mercy is not first defined in terms of the world. His love is first defined in terms of himself, and his mercy is God showing love, but 
pity, which presupposes a fallenness to the world, right? We don't have the triune person showing mercy to one another, right? They show love to one another, but mercy and grace is now tied to that which we do not deserve grace or that which in terms of mercy is is to a pitiful world, right? Which presupposes love displayed or exercised in relation to a fallenness. And this is crucial because if we don't make that distinction between God and himself and God in the world, we then say, well, love must show itself in grace, must show itself in grace or must show itself in mercy. Now, when we speak of justice as essential, God will and must show his justice. And and that's where, of course, issues of salvation, the issues of atonement and so on. So where we see mercy and grace first being displayed, right, is, uh, is in relation to sin, right? So God chooses to redeem us. Uh, in our fall in Genesis 3, God does not have to save. Uh, God uh, displays his holy love within himself and in relation to the world. And that holy love, first and foremost, is upholding his own moral demand, upholding his own moral character, which results in ultimately uh, judgment of our sin. Uh, but when we think of God's grace and mercy in the storyline of Scripture, we see it first displayed in terms of our sin, the God's promise of redemption. And then you think of all the way through a post-fall world where God shows himself uh, eventually, you say Exodus 34, where God identifies himself as the one who is, is faithful to his covenant promises, Hesed. He was true and, and shows grace. So faithfulness, truth, grace and so on, Hesed and Emet in the Old Testament gets picked up and run through the New Testament in terms of grace and truth, where God displays these attributes. He chooses a people for himself in grace, Romans 9 with election and so on. Those are acts of God that he chooses that he does not have to do, but he chooses to do so and so on. So the whole storyline of scripture then picks up that initiative of showing mercy, showing grace, but justice is that which, and we'll, we'll come to this, right, is must be exercised for God to remain true to himself. He does not have to exercise mercy towards us. That's an act of choice that he does to display grace and mercy to us. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on the way that you're answering this and thinking about the fact that, you know, God is just in his mercy because the way that he's going to bring about that mercy is ultimately going to lead to the cross, right? So we see in Romans 3 where he reveals himself as the just one and the justifier so that salvation is an act of justification that comes from the justice of God because he cannot ignore the sin that is there. He cannot simply put a, a moral standard out there to say, come and be like this, or even just the, the view of the moral government theory, understanding the atonement that, you know, to show this is what must be done, but rather just turn turning a, a kind of a blind eye to the judgment that is there. But in the full payment of his wrath in that justice, he's providing mercy, he's providing salvation through that means. So it's helpful to see that God's justice as his working in the world leads to his mercy as he chooses to have mercy on some, and it leads to his judgment on others as he's passed over them in election and then bringing judgment upon them for their works of sin that they've done in the world. And so I think that's helpful to see just how God in his nature is working then in the world. 
You mentioned Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God reveals his character there to Moses in the cleft of the rock. And it just reminds me that in that passage of Exodus 32 through 34, really there's a crisis because the covenant is broken because of Israel's sin. And there Moses comes and intercedes. He's functioning as a, as a type of mediator, a type of Christ that is to come, even volunteering himself to receive the judgment of God. But God says no to him because he is not the one who's able to do that. But in that context, going back to Exodus 19 and through 40, we see the, the law of God that is being revealed there as well. And one of the things that you bring out in your article is these ideas of a legislative or a rectoral justice, as well as a distributive justice that leads into a couple of other definitions. Steve, as we think about the law of, of God that is revealed, how does that begin to help us to understand the justice of God? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we make the distinction between God and himself, right? So God is love, holy, just. So we think particularly of justice, right? So what does that mean, right? Well, God as the holy, just one is the standard of what is right and wrong, right? His very nature and ultimately his will, right? So in Christian theology, we don't separate, right? The the will of God from the very being of God. This is, you mentioned before, the uh, the governmental theory of atonement that that does this, right? So that they will say, well, God wills certain things. And so he will legislate, but they don't tie it to his very nature. So first, when we say God is just, we tie it to his very being. Now, as God then relates to the world, so he creates the world and he relates to the world. We then speak of justice in terms of his rule over that world, right? So he makes laws that govern our behavior, right? So that's legislative or rectoral justice. And it's important even in that to speak of that which in terms of his laws that's tied to him, uh, his demand upon us. We often speak of this in terms of moral law or even tied to creation itself, natural law, right? That's something that reflects the very will and nature of God that's universally the case so that it's always wrong, right, to to lie to one another, right? Why? Because ultimately that's a denial of the very being of God, who God is in his nature and will. It's always wrong to, now we have to factor in in a fallen world when we say murder, it's always wrong to murder. Of course, there's different contexts for taking a person's life, right? Self-defense is different than uh, war and so on, but premeditated murder, right? The taking of an image bearer's life is, is always wrong uh, in, in that sense, right? So these are moral laws that reflect the very being of God, but God then legislates, right? He is the judge. He is the ruler. He is properly the governor and rectoral or legislative justice is how he then rules over the world. So he rules not only by demanding from his creatures, that which is moral demand, right? Universal moral demand that's upon all people, all places, all times. But also we see in his outworking of the covenants, uh, he will legislate laws that we sometimes identify as positive laws and so on that aren't necessarily universal and for all people, right? So under the old covenant, right? You had food laws that he said, 
don't eat certain kinds of food. Uh, you know, here's legislation regarding sowing to two seeds in the field. That's all laws that God legislates to violate that law of the covenant is to break the covenant. Yet we wouldn't put that as a universal moral law. That's for a certain purpose tied to the covenantal people of God that he as the law giver has the right to legislate, right? So we then have to sometimes distinguish how he rules his universe, how he legislates his demand upon us. And often in the world, right, God legislates through authorities, right? He legislates through the family, right? Parents to children. These are spheres of rule. He legislates through government. He legislates through church, through the covenant community and so on. So that's rectoral legislative. So God rules. He provides laws. He legislates. Some of those are tied to universal moral demands. Others are tied to particular purposes of the covenant. And then distributive justice is how he brings about in terms of the, that legislation, how he brings about reward, right? He rewards us for doing right action. So that's remunerative. And there's also judgment for doing wrong action. That's retributive. So that there is, so lex talionis, right? If one violates the law, right? You break the law. Here is the punishment that then results. That's retributive. Uh, if you do what is right and good, here are benefits that result, rewards that result. So that's his distribution of his justice in the world. And those are all important terms to keep in mind. So he is just within himself. He makes a world and he is the ruler of it and he legislates rectorally, right? He has, he exercises his rule over that world and makes commands and demands of his creature. Some of those demands are universal demands. Others of them are tied to the purposes of the covenant itself that can be you know, in some sense fulfilled or brought to, we, we don't have to follow the food laws anymore because we're not under the old covenant. Yet that was something Israel had to do. And then you, of course, have rewards and punishments that then result. So God's justice is exercised. So when he gives one a just reward, that's justice. When he gives us a punishment for what we do that's wrong, that's justice. And it's always according to the standard of God and his will and his very being and his nature tied to his revelation. That's a helpful just kind of lay of the land to help us to think through how that law works to us today. Steve, one of the things you mentioned there, again, this idea of distributive justice, that would be maybe some people hear that and think social justice, right? Social justice often defined today as redistributing things that are unequal, that if there is a, a lack of equality, there needs to be equity that is put forward there. And so there is kind of a redistribution of things that are there. You touch on that in your piece a little bit. What are you talking about here, though, when you talk about distributive justice versus social justice? How, how do we understand the difference between the laws that are put forward in places like Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, as opposed to this call for social justice today? Yeah, I mean, this is crucial where we have to have to distinguish, you know, the Bible's view of justice from our contemporary culture's view of social justice, right? So just adding the adjective social in front of justice, right? I mean, you could make biblical sense of that, right? Because obviously in biblical justice, it's tied to society. Think of the covenant. My colleague, uh, uh, Peter Gentry, when we 
put together Kingdom Through Covenant, he often used this term social justice and often was misunderstood by people because he's speaking of it in terms of a biblical frame of reference. So in relation to the covenant, right, we are to act justly not only before God, but before one another. And he called that social justice. The problem, and, and we had to tell him this, is that he wasn't uh, necessarily paying attention to uh, to all of the cultural movement at this point. He's thinking in biblical categories. And then when you move to our, our society, social justice, that term has been hijacked or at least redefined in terms of our contemporary culture. So that social justice now is put within the frame, not of a Christian frame of reference, creator and creature, that God is the standard, that justice is adherence to his standards, his laws, uh, as he reveals himself. But it's tied to a constructivist view of justice, right? So, you know, this there's a long history of this, where this sort of secular, modern to postmodern age then views justice, not from the standard of God and his revelation, but they do so from the standard of a human autonomous starting point, right? So we construct what we think is good and right and beautiful. We're not having a standard outside of ourselves. So this is where we get the notion of a constructivist view. We construct. And then, of course, it gets tied to our own identity constructions and so on. And then it gets combined with justice is now put together with often Marxist categories, right, of, of equality of outcome, right? So redistribution, but all of that in our society is without a standard. It's always the standard of the human subject that is now, well, we have to right the wrongs. We have to put people in the category of oppressor and oppressed and, 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 and these kind of categories. Those aren't biblical categories, right? So when we think of justice biblically, we're not, we have to uncouple it, distinguish it from our society that is working from a framework of no creator creature distinction. God is not the standard. His word is not the our authoritative ground by which we view an action as right versus wrong and thus just versus unjust. So this is where a biblical view of justice and distribution, right? When we give reward to people, we give reward to people according to the standards of God's word. So for instance, right? When we think of God creating humans to work, right? God creating humans as image bearers who are to work and to, if you do not work, you do not eat, the apostle Paul says, and so on. And we have a society that says, oh no, we need to reward those who don't work, right? We need to reward those who become dependent upon the state. And of course, obviously there's cases where, you know, widows and orphans and disabled and so on need help from us. But for able-bodied workers, we say, well, no, we will give them reward and we will take from those who work sort of the Marxist ideal, will take from the ones who actually earn their income, redistribute it to them for writing some wrong, you know, some writing some maybe racial wrong or gender wrong or something like that. And we then decide what is just and right and what the proper reward is and what the proper punishment is. The Bible will say, no, that is not a proper reward. That is unjust, right? We must hold people accountable for their actions. They need to work. If they do not work, they do not eat and so on and so on and so on. So our whole welfare system, which had probably good intentions, is not operating from a Christian view of God. 
his demand, a Christian view of humans and what we are to be and our responsibilities and who we are. It's bringing in and importing false notions of of, of humans, of oppressor oppressed, of gender, of race, of all of these areas. And it's working on a relative foundation, ultimately a human constructivist foundation. So a biblical view of justice will say a reward has to be given to those that God says a reward is to be given to. A punishment is for an action that the Bible deems wrong versus what is right, right? So if I take someone's life, then there's a punishment that's involved. Or if I steal from someone, there's a punishment that's involved in that, right? So retributive justice. If I do what is right and good, there is a proper reward, but it has to be defined in terms of God and his revelation of what is right and just and good. Yeah, what a difference it makes between making a law in our own image and being image bearers who are seeking to make laws in the image of God right? The standard that he has given to us. You mentioned Peter Gentry and just his use of social justice there, using it in a very different way than the way it's often used today. It reminds me of Thaddeus Williams' book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. He talks about social justice A and social justice B. And I think that's helpful that people may not get the nomenclature exactly right. And so they use social justice, but they're using biblical categories. But then that makes it really easy when they're talking that way to kind of slide those two things together and to think that what they're saying from the Bible is compatible with the world, or usually it goes in reverse. What the world is talking about with social justice is now compatible with scripture, and it gets very muddled. When I think about social justice, I think one of the authors and thinkers who's been most helpful for me is uh, someone like Thomas Sowell, and who has talked about this idea of cosmic justice. And he's defining social justice with this idea of kind of this abstract, man-centered, constructivist view of justice that is there, to borrow another category of his, to think through the idea of an unconstrained vision, uh, that they have this vision that is coming to them of whatever they think the world should be. They're trying to correct God. They're trying to correct the disparities of history, whatever the case may be. And they're trying to put those things in place. But when they're doing that, the standard becomes themselves or their party or their ideology instead of the standard that God has given to us. And so for me, at least, Thomas Sowell, some of the things that he has had to say through the years has been more helpful than some of the things that I have read from others who would be Christians, but are actually not using biblical categories. So Steve, that seems something kind of an oddity that Thomas Sowell, who is not doing biblical exegesis, is sometimes more helpful than others. Uh, you've read him. What is going on with Thomas Sowell that he seems to have a better pulse on justice than others? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to go back and 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 ask him, you know, what's going on there. But I mean, my hunch is, is that he is living off um, a borrowed heritage of the Christian worldview, so that the impact of Christianity, we'll just leave it to Western society, but I mean, obviously around the world, but the impact of Christianity on the West has been, you know, incalculable. I mean, so that, so that we pick up from the society. I mean, until recent times, until the enlightenment began to change things and the Darwinian view comes in, say 1859. And then of course, Marx and builds off the Darwinian view and, and the materialistic view, things radically change. You have the constructivist view that goes all the way back in some sense to Immanuel Kant, but then of course, you know, comes with a vengeance in the post Darwinian 
Darwinian world. I mean, a person like Thomas Sowell is really working from categories that are more biblical categories that are tied to, I think, a tradition, a history. So he has a proper sense of retributive justice. He has a proper sense then of humans that, uh, you know, he speaks strongly against the dangers of a welfare system and the dangers of dividing people up into racial categories and intersectionality and these kind of things. But he's working from Christian assumptions. And I think often what happens with Christians is, is that they will use the Bible's terminology, but they really are adopting more of the world's categories. And this this becomes very disconcerting, doesn't it? Because you would think they are the ones who should know best, but they then sort of baptize the Bible's categories in non-Christian terms. And I think Saul, without necessarily doing the biblical exegesis, is really staying more true to biblical categories and then critiquing the culture uh, around him because he sees, you know, the push towards, say, a Marxist view is so antithetical to Western society, but it's really antithetical to the impact of Christianity on the West. And we see this in a number of areas. I mean, I think also, you know, Thomas Sowell, I think of James Lindsay, that is, that is appealed to by many, many people. When I listen to him, uh, he's making arguments that are really requiring a Christian view of the world where he himself has gone from an atheism to probably an agnosticism today. He doesn't say much about, you know, taking back uh, things to the, the reality of God, but he's assuming so many Christian views. He assumes objective truth. He assumes universal truth. He assumes these kind of categories. The soul assumes those as well, but those require a Christian view of the world. So the sad fact is, is many in our churches, many, many leaders in our churches, many, you know, organizations that we often identify with, you know, Carl Truman's famous term, Big Eva, um, are muddled. I mean, they, they, especially social justice, they pick up the, the, the ethic of Jesus and they pick up how we are to love one another and so on. And they, and they, they combine this. They're, they're almost syncretists, right? They take sort of the Bible's teaching, the world's teaching, and it gets blended without proper distinctions, without carefully saying we must start with scripture and what it says and then critique the culture. And and syncretism, I guess, has always been a problem through the history of the church. And we see it today. And we see even non-Christians sometimes uh, making better arguments because they're, they're operating without them, I even think realizing it, they're operating with a uh, dependence upon the Christian view that, that we've inherited and which sadly our society is now seeking to overturn. Yeah, certainly I think syncretism is, is there. We've seen that in a book like by Eric Mason, his uh, woke church where he is defining the gospel in holistic view, where it is uh, justification by faith and it is doing justice that both of those things are necessary for uh, what the gospel is. We've seen this recently in a podcast from another, you know, large ministry that is talking about that when we stand before uh, the judgment of God, it is not just our, our single act of faith, uh, but it is actually the obedience of our works that are also brought into bear as far as our justification goes. So there's certainly that, that appeal that is there. I think one of the things that's interesting about soul to go back to him for just a moment is that he is recognizing retributive categories, which seems to be not always well appreciated, even by those who are working from the Bible. And secondarily, he is showing forth the way that the justice system has changed over the last 75 years in America. 
where instead of retributive justice for the criminal, the criminal is now treated as a victim. And so there's been a therapeutic justice that has been there. And I think that victimization has just done a legion of, of harm among Christians today that we want to have sympathy and love and care and empathy and all of these things for the victim and everybody's being a victim. And yet some of those victims are also the perpetrators of crime are perpetrators of wrongdoing. And so because we've moved away from that, everything about justice has become, we just need to do love and justice then gets swallowed up in love. Uh, and when we're defining one category by the other, it's missing what scripture has laid out, which helps us to see why it is that when the gospel comes, it's not the denial of the law, it's the fulfillment of the law. Uh, that Jesus came to die under the law, to feel the full weight of the, the law in his death on the cross for our sins. And so in that regard, again, to go back to Romans 3, that God is both just and the justifier that is there. Yeah, I mean, we see in, in Christian theology, right? If, unless you get these foundational issues right, your other doctrinal areas are going to go, and also your understanding of the gospel itself. And particularly, you see it. You mentioned the atonement. We really see it uh, show up in the atonement because in the in the cross of Christ. I mean, in in Christology and who Jesus is and what He does. Uh, your whole theology comes together, right? If you if you're wrong in who who God is, you're wrong in terms of the Trinity. You're wrong in terms of divine attributes. Uh, you'll never get sin right. You'll never understand retributive justice and and, and so on. And and so many many people uh, do not like the idea. I mean, so you think of a soul that speaks properly about retributive justice in society and he sees that if there is not retributive justice we hold people accountable for their actions we we have this victimization that takes place and it uh, leads to disaster c.s lewis mentioned this years ago in his famous humanitarian theory of punishment a very famous article that he was laying out the same issues years and years ago where society wrongly viewed you know viewed us more as victims not as responsible agents. But notice behind that is a certain view of humans, that we're image bearers, responsible for our actions. You can't just put us in a victim victimization class. In terms of sin, we are all oppressors in that sense, right? Uh, yes, some get victimized, but even then we are all uh, rebels against God, right? And so we have to bring in all of those categories. But you really see it, um, you know, a misunderstanding of retributive justice, that God holds us to account, that God punishes for our actions. If you get that point wrong, you really get the cross wrong. And that's why there's so many debates today, even in evangelical circles, over penal substitution, that at the center of the cross, the heart of the cross, Christ is bearing our sin. Uh, justice is being upheld, which is the very display of God's love for us. But it's only because God himself, God the Son, is able to bear his own demand and, and uh, satisfy his own righteous, just demand against us, uh, which is the very display of his love. You get those things wrong, it'll get everything in your theology wrong. That's why we have people, as you said, oh, yes, justification is not just faith, but it's also you know acting justly. Well, you're just muddied the waters here. You do not understand the central nature of the gospel. You're picking up truths, but you're not putting them together the way the Bible puts them together in a way we have to think theologically about these matters. And we, we really, really need to return. That's why I entitled the article to proper biblical and theological thinking about these matters. Otherwise, the church will forever 
ever be adrift and simply adopt the uh, cultural mindset of the day. Yeah, just thinking about this reminds me of David Wells and what he has had to say about divine weightlessness. There just seems to be a weightlessness to the reality of sin before a holy God, right? And the the greater weight is put on humanity, uh, that we've become so man-centered, we've become so demographic, so focused on sociology that a proper theology is lost here. And when that is lost, we don't come to realize the magnitude of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And if we realize our great sin before God and what Christ has accomplished, that that is where our penalty has been paid, it really sets us free not to demand justice from others, but to go and to give mercy as we have received mercy uh, that is there. But I'm thinking about just on the atonement theory. I mean, someone like an N.T. Wright in his day, the revolution began. I mean, he has a, a Christus victor and kind of a, a penal representation view, but he doesn't get to the issue of sin that is there. And so ultimately it leads to a kind of social work and a political outworking because things still need to be done. Evil has been defeated in some sense, but only now we must join the work of, of defeating evil there instead of the finished work of Christ on the cross that muddles the gospel, that muddles what our ethics are to be. And again, it, it threatens the, the good news that we're to proclaim to the world. Yeah, I mean, on, on those issues, I mean, they pick up many, many biblical truths, right? So that, that's the problem with error is that it's not completely wrong. It skews the biblical balance, right? And the biblical truths start with our relationship before God. It starts with who God is as the holy, loving, just one. And then, of course, in relation then to us. So that's why the question of Scripture, if you were to say it that way, which is not how our society views it, is is how do I, and you mentioned this, how do I stand right before a holy, just God? That's not where uh, these other views of atonement are going. They're more looking at it horizontally. Now, are there horizontal implications of the cross? Absolutely. But we first have to then deal with the issue of how do I stand before this this particular God, this holy, just one, uh, this God who is the standard of the universe. And that's where the problem lies, which then must be solved in terms of the giving of the Son of God, the divine Son who assumes our humanity, who acts as our covenant head and representative, who pays for our sin. And, and then we have the outworking of this in our lives and so on. But unless we first see our relationship first to God, and then, of course, this shows up in issues, as you mentioned, with uh, social justice, you know, in our relation to one another. You think of the parable that Jesus gives of the man, the person forgives this man millions of dollars of, of, of debt type of thing. And then he turns around and demands from someone who barely owes him anything, full payment type of thing. And, and Jesus says, you know, if you don't forgive your brother and so on, but all of that makes sense in the context that we first have to see that we are sinners before God, that all of us, even if we've been victimized, we are all rebels against God. Our great problem, no matter who we are, no matter our gender, our race, our background, we universally are under sin and we need to be justified and reconciled to God, which allows us then to then look at the horizontal sin that has been brought against us and so on. And that changes our entire attitude of how we forgive one another, how we relate to one another, what we demand from one another. And unless we have this proper theocentric sense that we stand as individuals before God, who then must have that problem resolved, we will never able, be able to even carry out in our society, in our churches, and our families, a proper relation to one another. And this is the sad 
point that we're seeing in our society. When these things get confused, it's just disaster all the way down. It's disaster in society. It's disaster in our families. It's disaster in our churches. It's, it's, it's uh, people at each other's throats demanding my rights. My, I'm the victim. You got to give to me. You got to, you know, pay me for this and so on. And it's just so antithetical to the entire Christian view. Amen. Steve, maybe final question here. What can pastors do or where can pastors go in the scriptures to help feed their people from the word of God to kind of embrace some of these truths, not only to see it, but also to embrace it from the scriptures? Well, I mean, we, they need the entirety of scripture, right? I mean, but we, we, you know, you think of the great truths you're working through the Old Testament of, of, of first of all, Genesis 1 creator creature distinction and just hammering that home to people. God is as the triune God, independent of the world. This is who he is. And then as we look at how he reveals himself in relation to the world, in relation to sin, you think of a Genesis three, God who is, who provides a promise of redemption, but he brings judgment against sin, the fallen world, the flood, right? Uh, the flood's just not some local flood. It's a universal flood that wipes away everybody except Noah and his family, right? That's judgment. Right. So you see these areas, Babel, Babel, you know, in terms of the tower there, in terms of God's plan of redemption over against the nations. I mean, just working through scripture, how God is the one who is the ruler of all, who's justly think of Abraham saying to uh, about God, you're the judge of all the earth and you will do right. So so just walking through the storyline of scripture, walking through God's presentation of himself and then tying it all to the cross. Right. So Romans, you mentioned Romans three. 21 through 26. I mean, if you get that sense of God as the just one and the justify, and that in the cross, God's justice, his righteousness has been upheld and displayed in the cross. We tie it back to creation. We tie it back to God as the judge of human sin. We see how he works in terms of judgment of nations uh, in relation to his covenant people, and then also maybe the provision of Christ in the cross. And of course, going to the book of Revelation, seeing that there is the final judgment to come. There is the saving of his people, but there will be the balancing of the books. God is just. God will uphold his own holy moral standards and that no sin will ever, ever uh, be left unpunished. Uh, for the Christian, our sin has been punished in Christ. It's been fully met in Christ. But God will be the just. I mean, he is the just one and he will uphold his justice. And, and the great comfort we have is that this is truly a moral universe. God is the moral standard and that all sin will be dealt with. It'll be dealt with either in Christ and his cross, or it'll be dealt with in terms of final judgment. And of course, that's another crucial issue that justice shows up in terms of the reality of hell and final judgment. Again, another point that evangelicals are becoming very, very soft on. So we have to help people think through who God is, what sin is, who we are. You work through scripture. You just see everywhere God's grace displayed, but also his judgment against human sin, the provision of a redeemer. The whole plan of redemption is centered on the Holy One who now provides a redeemer for us and ultimately culminating in final judgment. This is where we have to take people. We have to bring them back to the entirety, the whole counsel of God. And we must not be 
preaching texts that are uh, pulled out of context, read in terms of the culture. We have to think through biblical categories, biblical frame. Our theology must come from scripture itself, not from quoting the Bible and then, you know, sort of syncretistically connecting it with the culture so that really our message is more about the culture than it is about the biblical teaching and categories. Yeah, the whole counsel of God is needed. If I were to add one more thing in there, I think Psalm 90 through 106, book four of the Psalter. We did a series on that a couple of years ago in the summer of 2020 when everything was just on fire. And uh, that was really helpful because there's a number of things there about God's righteousness and his justice and his judgment that was really helpful for our people. I'm reminded as much as we've spoken about Thomas Sowell, it is good to read Thomas Sowell. It is not good to preach Thomas Sowell. Uh, We need to (laughs) preach uh, the word of God, right? Uh, And thinking through the biblical exposition is sufficient for us there. And if uh, those who have borrowed capital from Christianity, ultimately we need to go back to the source. And the source is the, the regular exposition of the word of God, where we see a high view of God, a low view of man, a great need for a Savior and the provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. So certainly all the things that Steve has just mentioned, the things uh, in Psalm 90 through 106, especially Psalm 97 through 101, uh, is a great place to be able to see some of these truths. Well, I need to think of, you know, the prophets, right? Reading the prophets, the mm. majestic presentation of God, Isaiah 40 through 48, God's judgment on the nations, right? And his display of his grace and his covenant people and his covenant promises. I mean, you're exactly right. What the great need of the day is, is that we have to proclaim the glory of the triune God. We have mm. to get back to a theocentric point in our Christianity. I mean, we are just so consumed with just seeing things horizontally, right? We have to get people to think rightly about who God is. And then the outworking of that in terms of our lives. If we don't do that, right? You mentioned David Wells, right? God becomes weightless. His glory is robbed. And we then just become driftless and aimless. And we just pick up the thought of the world, the zeitgeist of the world, and we are tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what we're trying, obviously, at Christ overall to to counter, to provide proper biblical theological thinking to help the church. Amen. And Lord willing, we will continue to do that week by week throughout the rest of this year. This month, we continue to look at the civil rights movement and many of the articles there kind of flesh out these themes there. But I think we'll call it a a day today. Steve, thanks for being on the call today for the podcast. Well, always a delight, and especially on such an important subject of of the glory of God and the God is the who is the just one. Amen. Amen. And friends, thank you for listening to Christ Overall today. If this discussion about the biblical and theological foundations for justice has piqued your interest in the subject, take time to read or listen to Steve's long form, Thinking Biblically and Theologically About Justice. At the same time, if you want to see how these biblical principles inform the way we think about justice, civil rights, and the civil rights movement, take time to listen to the other podcast with Virgil Walker, as well as reading some of the other articles at ChristOverall.com. You can find other articles from previous months as well on various landing pages. Every month at Christ Overall, we address a different theme, and you can find all of them at christoverall.com themes. If you look through those themes and think that they are worthwhile for equipping the church with evergreen resources to address cultural issues, and you'd like to talk further about partnering for future ministry, we'd love to hear from you. Christ Overall endeavors to provide free resources online to equip the church, and yet the cost of producing these resources is not free. We continue to look for friends who help support the work of Christ Overall, 
And you can do that by donating online or by talking to us about potential projects. Even if you are not able to give right now, please continue to share these resources with others and pray that God will use them to build up the faith of God's saints. It is our joy to produce this content and we rejoice when it blesses others. To that end, we will be back next week as the Lord allows. Until then, let us remember that Christ is Lord over all. And so in all things, let us exalt Christ.